This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 45 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most childlike podcast in the business. (laughs) My name is James Myers, and I'm your host. Today we're going to be talking about two related topics, designing games for kids and designing games for contests. With me tonight are two designers who are going to be sending their designs to Germany after the recent Haba Design Contest. First up is Graham Russell. Hey, James. Also with me is Julio Nazario. Hey, yo. So you guys may have heard Julio on other podcasts if you are a frequent listener, uh, but this is his first time on Game Designers North Carolina, and that is because he is new to North Carolina. Uh, so Julio, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, why you... Who you are and how you started designing and all that kind of stuff. Do we have that much time? Jeez. We have all uh, the time in the world. <laughs> now, um, so uh, my name is Julio Nazario. I, uh, I'm uh, starting a new game designer originally from Puerto Rico. Uh, I moved to the United States, well, to the States, to the mainland, three and a half years ago to Cleveland, Tennessee. And from there on, I kind of been, that's kind of how I got started into board games, just playing board games in general. I've never really been a board game person, especially in Puerto Rico. It's not a big thing there besides, you know, Monopoly and, and Scrabble and all that stuff. So, of course, moving to, to the States, I didn't have as uh, many friends, but I've always been a very uh, extrovert person. So I would... I would look for locations where people would hang out and, and just kind of that's kind of how the whole board game thing started. I have some family over and we got some. Hey, this this is cool. We were in a used bookstore and I bought uh, Pixel Tactics 2 from Level 99 Games. That was <laughs> my first game I, I bought random. Right. But and I really got into it. And I'm like, man, there's and I, that's where I first searched for uh, board game geek. And I'm like, man, there's so many board games out there. Wow. And from there, I just kind of started buying board games here and there. And, and from there, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I liked the social component of getting around with people and, and playing games. And it was fun. Now, board game design-wise, I, uh, I was living in Nashville, North Carolina for four months because of my work. And I was walking in the woods with a coworker, and he was talking about all these different tra- types of trees. He's a forester. And I'm an engineer, and I don't know anything about trees. So he's talking about this uh, red maple, yellow pine, black cherry, white walnut. And I'm like, all these trees have colors associated with them. So there's a game in here somewhere. I- I'm going to see if I can design something. And that's where my first game, Timber Tactics, came from. It kind of spawned off from Catan. I knew how Catan it was kind of a resource. I- at the point, I didn't know what Euro game was. I didn't know what really designing game was and and that's kind of how the whole thing started and it has been a roller coaster from there (laughs) so you've been designing for a little over a year now at this point uh yes uh july last year okay and how many games do you have signed already (laughs) two i got two games signed and and some other stuff maybe Okay. Uh, James rubbing it in for both of us. <laughs> yeah, both of the, Graham and I have taken a much longer road, but we'll get there eventually. Yeah. Uh, so, Hula, what would you say has uh, surprised you so most so far about the design world? 
just how uh, welcoming it is. You would think that uh, a creative uh, industry like this one, you know, you would think art, photography, music, all those industries are creative. And I would say they're maybe a little competitive because, you know, you've got multiple creative people trying to break out and, 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 and get noticed. And in this industry, since it's so important that people get together and play each other's games and get feedback that way, it's just kind of spawn how welcoming it is and, and, and just kind of, and the, and, the, and how awesome it is in general. Uh, at first, when I started, I was like, I had an NDA for you to sign to play test my game. You know, I, I've made those mistakes too. But over time, I just kind of noticed after listening to a lot of podcasts that it wasn't really uh, worth it. It wasn't really necessary. And how many people I've met and how awesome they are, how welcoming. And, and it's just been awesome. Very nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's always amazing to meet, especially publishers who are doing this to make a living. And they say, you know, this is not for us, but I'm happy to look at it and help you with it and find who it belongs to, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What has been as it, as you expected it to be in the industry? Well, what was not a surprise when you got into designing? One thing that I, I, I thought it was kind of obvious is that it, it was kind of maybe uh, easy to get into because board games is just usually cardboard and cards and dice and Stuff that you could usually get really easy. It's not like, you know, video game industry where you need set a set skills to to develop and design video games, which I obviously didn't have. But for board games, I, w- I thought, you know, if I get some cards together and cut up some cardboard and get some dice, I can definitely get something done at least. Uh, so that intro, that uh, bar- barrier to entry, was definitely expected that it was going to be easy. At least, you know, on the prototype, getting games designed part. Yeah, it's like as long as you've got access to paper and pencil, you can do something. Yes, for sure. All right. So let's move into the segment we call What's in the Oven? And we're talking about what we've been working on recently. Why don't we just continue with you, Julio? Because I know you always have a ton of projects on your plate. Oh, man. Let's see. I got, I'm still, so games that I got active. Uh, number eight, I would say. Well, I just call my games by numbers, and then the the name comes in comparison. Uh, Global Towers, that's number one. That's the one that it's a finalist for the Korea Board Games Contest. We'll see how that one goes. That's an educational game, tower building, uh, where you got flags. You're matching colors with flags with a tower that you're building. Then I've got number... 13, lucky number 13, which is Sheep Sheep Rescue. That's the my my Haba game. Then I've got 15, which is Emui. That's a, a tile lane game where you use a single type of tile. The tile, All tiles are shaped the same way. They have the same printed colors on them. And what matters is the directional perspective of that tile. You've got the shape is an M, E, W, and 3. They're the same tile is just that depending on who's looking at it and from which direction is how you're placing it it's an abstract game simultaneous play uh number 17 is the dice dice revolution that game spawned from from inspired from dance dance revolution i've always been a big video gamer so i loved playing that game and when i thought of that name i'm like i gotta design a game on this and it's it's in a really good state i'm really excited it's a dexterity game that uses music 
and depending on the on the song that you use is the way that you're playing the game. And of course, each player has like asymmetric powers depending on the character they play. And they have to do like dance moves or maybe the way you roll the dice or the way you score the dice. It's it's a fun little party game. Yeah, I and, saw that one getting tested at Gen Con and I've never seen anyone dab in the middle of a board game before. <laughs> yeah, Roscoe. Shout out to Roscoe. He did really well there. <laughs> Let's see. So then we got number 18, which is Project KR. That's the one with the multi-directional dice tower. It's a tower defense game. I'm actually a little blocked on that one, mechanics-wise. So I may be shelved for a while and see where, how I can come back to it. And then I've got 19, which is a co-design with Andrew Spawn, a fellow game designer of North Carolina Asheville member. That is a racing game that uses tiles on top of a box. Now, the thing is that you are shouting masters that are going through different tiles, platforms. It's a five by five grid of tiles, and each tile is three by three. And there's there's platforms in there, and you use cards to move around each platform. The thing is that each tile has a treasure on it. So... You you are trying to collect these treasures and at the same time it's getting your deck bucked down because it's kind of like a deck building aspect. Cool thing is that once a certain treasures are collected, the box, the map flips. So you basically take the box, you put the other top of the box and flip it to make that quick change in the game state. And then the, the, the new uh, map is like there's not many platforms and the platforms are coming down as a timer uh, i'm pretty excited about that one and the last one is forgotten tech that's number 20 it's a trivia game that players are building forgotten technologies from an age's past because it's a post-apocalyptic world uh you are dice drafting in that game and i'm uh, pretty excited about that one as well it's a that's kind of what i've got i try to went as fast as i could <laughs> you you certainly have a ton of projects. We're going to have to have you back on at some point uh, to talk about project management and keeping all these things, all these different projects st- oh, straight and sure, in order sounds, or something like wow. that. <laughs> sounds fun. <laughs> so, Grant, why don't yeah. you tell us what you've been working on lately? Sure. So I haven't designed 20 games in the past year, uh, so this will be shorter. <laughs> no, the... I've been on previously and talked about a lot of designs uh, when I started working on them. You know, like I've talked about Gilded, I've talked about Pick and Roll, I've talked about Pixel Factory. I have these games that have been near fits with publishers repeatedly. So uh, a lot of my time right now has been spent sending things off, trying to revise things, uh, and and it, and it nothing's worked out quite yet. But, but yeah, a lot of my time has been spent uh, polishing old projects. It was nice this summer to take a break and, and do this contest, which we'll talk about later. That was nice. And uh, we've talked before on this podcast about how you should start small and then work your way up to the kind of big game you've always wanted to make. Well, I'm about 25 years in, so I should probably start working on that, that big game, huh? Uh, <laughs> So I, I'm in the early stages of working on a game that I hope will come together uh, by next Unpub. That's my goal. It's uh, it's a a three to five player uh, sort of management sim type board game based on the console wars of the mid 90s. 
So the the idea is that you like develop games, put staff on them, take them to the big show in the summer, uh, market them in the holiday, and 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 try to compete with the other the other main consoles and see how they do. So it that has a lot more systems than I'm than I'm usually working on. So it, I'm taking it uh, slowly and methodically to make sure I don't mess anything up. That sounds fun. Um, have you ever read the book The Console Wars? Yeah, no, I have a bookshelf for that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> even more nice. than game design, if if you want to chat about video game history, I I remember when there were only two or three books about it when I was a kid, so I owned those. But yeah, no, that's it's kind of uh, a passion of mine for that stuff. So it's I want to make sure I get it right. So so th- yeah, for the, for sure, those bigger games definitely require a lot more research. Yeah. Yeah, and and starting now means you've got a good six months to hammer away on it before Unpub. I should be able to get it done. Yep, that's yep. I should. I should hold me to it, Internet. I'll hold you to it. If I can okay. make a couple of games in that time, I'll hold you to it. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm sure you'll bring game 38 to Unpub next year. And uh, <laughs> no, and, no, and I by gotta, the end I of the weekend it'll be signed. Down. I got. I got to do development work on some games and stuff, and it's, it's slowing down for sure. Yeah. Oh boy! Less and less time developing, and more and more time doing business. Unfortunately, I, I have no further comment. It, yeah, business, huh? <laughs> Let's get to our topic, James. All right. Well, before we do, oh well, what about James? Yeah. James, where, where so, um, I spent half of August on the road, uh, which is ridiculous because I have family in Indiana, so I always take the long way home from Gen Con, and then I hit up a local convention here just last weekend, two weekends ago at this point. But I've made a lot of progress on Airboat Bayou, which got playtests both at Gen Con and at Mega Moose Con. Big thanks to Matt Wolf for convincing me that it does need a single market. But really excited about where that one's going. Uh, possible retheme to show non-American publishers. Because I can't think of anybody in Germany or the UK who would know what an airboat is or has ever hung out in a bayou. But it's just been a lot of fun to work on, and I'm, it's one of those games where I almost always insist on getting in on the playtest unless we've hit max player count. And then starting a somewhat abstract game that I'm calling Mole at the moment, which is all about moles uh, running around in a garden and gathering vegetables to sell to the gophers. Uh, because after all, the farmer would kill the gophers, but the farmer doesn't think the moles eat the vegetables. So they are both underground and undercover moles. Yeah, I, uh, I I saw your blog post, and and you've got a, a couple of projects going on, James. You're you're definitely pumping up some some projects. You're, you've got a lot on your plate. That's cool. Yeah, with, since this is the you know I the first time I'm going to Essen this year, and it's not intended to be an every year thing. So it's like, how many projects can I get ready for this yeah. big trip? That's only going to happen like once every three years or something like that. Yeah, you gotta um, make you gotta make it worth it. You know, that is the plan. That is the plan. All right, let's jump into our main topic. So we're we're kind of talking about two things that are related this week: design for kids and designing for contests. So I have managed to not play either of these games as you guys have been developing, even though they were, I've seen them both out of the corner of my <laughs> eye, essentially. Uh, sure. So Graham, why don't you tell us about Anna Pals? Sure. So the in this game, you have a secret animal right like they're they're animal cards of each of five animals you have you know whatever was included in the kit right you got kangaroos you got alligators you got snakes you got ducks 
and you got penguins. And the goal of the game is you play on a four by four grid. All, all the pieces all start out on the board. Um, but on your turn, you uh, roll a very, a very hobble like die, a, a colored die. And uh, then you determine what animal you can move that turn. And, and you can move an animal one space. And your goal is to position the board so that each of the four animals of your type are on different spaces that are, are occupied by the other four types of animals first. So you're trying to move the animals so that the, yours is in the best position without necessarily giving away which one you are, right? Uh, because, you know, depending on the player count, uh, you don't want to make everyone prioritize. Oh, no, no, we got we to gotta move the snakes. Don't let the snakes get in position. There's also a, a zookeeper that can move around uh, that locks down a tile. You can't move anything in or out of it. Uh, then you can move the zookeeper and carry an animal with you uh, when you do. But the idea was to create a very simple rule set that makes for some interesting choices, which, of course, we'll get to later. But, yeah, that's that's the game. Yeah, so you're trying to trying to position your animals, but you can move any animals that you want? Right, because no one else knows they're your animals, right? You have your, your secret objective. Here's the animal you need to get in position. But on a given turn, you're sort of forced to move one type of animal. But you can, you can usually make a move that is advantageous for you or failing that disadvantageous for everyone else. Um, moving them off, you know, to a place by themselves means they can't be mashing with anyone. Uh, uh, how many animals are there per per? You know, how many number of ducks are there? How many number? Of there are four are there? of each animal. There are five types of animals. Okay. Um, so it, it plays two to five. A, a two player really is trying to read, you know, okay, which, which of these two animals are in play? Five player, you know, everyone, you, you know, each type of animal can match. So it's just a matter of trying to figure out who's who to, you know, deal with turn order to make sure that you're not setting someone up on their turn to win. And so that was, that's a, that's a hidden movement, or not hidden movement, but kind of, kind of deduction game. And were there actually categories in the contest that when they announced the finalists? Cause I was looking at the, yeah, the, they did. Uh, the announcements they did. and it's, so they were different kind of categories within. Yeah. The they, I mean, on mine, they put dexterity next to it. Yeah. There was, there weren't categories in terms of submission or, uh, you know, like, Okay, designed for this type of thing, uh, but they did try to categorize based on, you know, from what they played, right? And yeah, there were a lot of co-op games and there were a lot of dexterity games. And I went in knowing that, like, okay, there's going to be 250 Haba games. Everyone wants to stack wooden pieces. There's going to be enough dexterity games. I'm not that good. I'm going to make something that's not dexterity. <laughs> but you know, if you can just make a really, really good dexterity game, then then it's fine, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, dexterity games. Julio, why don't you tell us about Sheep Sheep Rescue? So before that, I actually had two designs for the Haba contest. Uh, one of them was called uh, Night at the Zoo. And I saw a lot of, like on people sharing stuff, I saw a lot of zoo games that used uh, animal pieces. A lot of people had those animal pieces. And mine, uh, it was very... Sounds very similar to yours. It plays differently, of course. It's a five by five grid where you are. You start off with one animal type. You start off with, you know, if you're the penguins, you're the penguins, and somebody's the kangaroos, and so so on. And you're trying to liberate the other animals of your type by finding them first. You're trying to search for them by flipping the cars on the grid and hmm. then moving out of the zoo, uh, so to escape. And the first person that escapes wins. But there is a zookeeper 
that has like these little visor. I put in these little sticks on the zookeeper, and <laughs> and you would roll like a you would have a spinner, and the spinner would determine the direction of where the zookeeper is looking at. And if you get caught in that visor, then you would go get back to your cage, kind of thing. The game was a little on the on the complicated side because it even had as an option some asymmetric powers depending on what animal you were, and I was trying to I was having problems with getting it to where I wanted it to be. And since I, I going back to Graham seeing, you know, there's a lot of people doing dexterity then I saw a lot of people using the zoo theme <laughs> and I kind of didn't decide to submit that one. But that one's yeah, that one uh, was night at the zoo. Yeah. I think but, the fact um, that they, uh, they included actual zookeepers, not just like, obviously there's going to be animals in it because ev- so many of the Hava games have animals. But there seem to be zookeepers with like an actual zookeeper overall printed on the wooden piece yeah. in a lot of people's kits this year. Yeah, I mean, so you know, for those of us who were doing this last year, there were animals in your in your set of stuff, pretty much guaranteed, right? You you get an animal or two at least. Uh, but this year it was specifically. It seemed like a lot of people got that sealed set of you know a bunch of each of these specific types of animals. It's like, well, this is half the box you sent me. I should probably use it. Going going to those uh, animals, the red one is that the one that you're calling a duck? Yeah. Okay. So, do we <laughs> want to talk about this? <laughs> no. Um, no I, I, I for me it was a koala. Yeah. No. No. You know. Abba's a great company, and I love. I would love to do some business with them. Uh, but when I got that animal, I definitely did be like, "What is this? What is this thing that I have? Uh, it matches the colors on the dice you gave me, so I have to use it instead of like the sheep, which the white was not on the die. So I was like, "Well, I can't use the sheep." So, so I had to like go look up, like, "Okay, what is this shape? When have you used it with other things?" And like, I I could not find it, but I found that shape. But it was green, and they said duck. So I don't After know. looking through it, I thought it was frog, a frog. Maybe? It was a frog. It was yeah, a frog. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, w- whatever it is. Uh, yeah. You know, my – well, I mean, so the, the game I submitted didn't name them, and all the, you know, all the components used symbols. It's, it's intentionally to get out, out of the way of that stuff. Oh, um, that's good. Uh, but yeah. Leave it to the, to the kid's imagination, huh? Yeah, and also I was like – Haba knows which one it was supposed to be. Haba made this. They know. I get. Yeah, I guess. I suppose it was a, a frog. But yeah, no. It's sometimes when you just get random, out of context wooden pieces in a box, you just gotta you wing it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And listeners, all those noises you heard in the background was me digging through my Haba kit from this year, trying to find that piece they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it it was a frog. I think. Yeah. That's that's um, probably true. So okay. So my game, uh, Chief Chew Rescue, it, it's a dexterity game. And the, the cool thing about this one is that it just has 10 components. And all the components that I used for, the, for my game were in the kit. And I didn't use any printed components, no cards, anything. One thing I did use that wasn't in the kit is a little rod, wooden rod, that we use to connect these wheels that I got. And it's just... I, I'm an engineer, so I saw these two wheels, and I'm like, I gotta connect these two things. I gotta find something, and I was looking for a little wooden rod, and I did it, and it worked out. And this is the first design that I obviously didn't have inspiration on it. I just kind of put everything on the table, and like a kid, I just started playing with the components, seeing how they interacted, and all that. And since I had that wheel, uh, which is called the slider, 
now. I I just started playing with that, and I noticed I was on this nice uh, surfaced table, like smooth surface, and and I started like pushing the components with the slider, and they just slided really nicely. Especially the sheep. A lot of the animals did, but the sheep were especially nice because they were like very narrow, but they were uh, wide. So th- just the dimensional symmetry was very good for what I wanted to do. And basically in Sheep Sheep Rescue, it's a one versus all game where one player, a player is a lion and the other players are the sheep. And in this game, the sheep are trying to rescue the lambs from the lion. Well, the lion has set up this trap for the sheep so that he can capture the sheep. And the board of the game is the table. Uh, Whatever table you're playing on, that's what the board is going to be. And the way it works is that one player, the lion player, places the lion wherever they want on the table. Then the sheep decide where to place their sheep. And depending on the number of players, if it's just a two-player game, then... One player controls the lion and the other player controls all the sheep. And, you know, then two and two or three and one and or one play one sheep for every player, depending on if it's four or or two or five or two. So the player places all the sheep on the table and you try to place them not close to the lion because the lion is trying to catch you. And then after that, the lion chooses where to place the lambs and the lambs are little uh, round white discs. And you would put them anywhere on the table as a lion because you're the one that hid the lambs so the sheep have to get them. And the point of the game is very simple. You are trying as a sheep to, with a sheep token, you're trying to touch the the lamb token. And with the lion, you're trying to touch the sheep. But the cool thing is you're using the, the slider to move, that little component I mentioned earlier. And the way it works is that the game uses a simple principle of physics called uh, coefficient of friction. So when you like when you move in a car, you use t- static uh, friction, and when you brake real hard, you're using fri- um, kinetic friction. And in this game, the slider, you place it behind the sheep, and then you flick it or you push it, however you want to do it. But it basically pushes the sheep, and the sheep is braking. The, the whole component. So it's kind of, it, it has that the dexterity that however much force you use is how far the sheep is going to go. But if you do it wrong, then the sheep can topple over. And that's part of the mechanic of the game. So the sheep topples over, even if you have touched a lamb token, you don't collect it. And you lose your turn next round. What you do, you just stand up. So you, oh, I, I, I tripped. I'm going to have to stand up next turn, and I lose my turn. And the lion, however, it worked really well because the lion token that I had had its tail, and the tail was kind of concaved upwards. So you could put the slider on top of the of the um, tail. And when you flick the lion, it worked uh, mechanically, it worked differently. So like I mentioned, the sheep worked as a friction, uh, kinetic friction. The lion worked as static friction because the 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 slider was breaking the lion instead of the of the other way around the, the line was breaking the uh the slider was breaking the line um so it moved very differently the lion was more you had to use more force to get farther but he was more stable because the slider 
was kind of holding it side to side. And of course, the, the lion was wider as well. It wasn't as narrow as the sheep. And if you, the way you collect the sheep is that you have to touch the sheep. And if you fall, so if you tripped as the lion, you don't collect the sheep, but you, you, you stand up real, real fast. So you don't lose a turn. And basically, that's the whole game. The game plays in 10 to 15 minutes, no matter how many players. And it's just kind of using that cool mechanic of, of sliding your your components using a, a, a different component. I uh, I was very happy when I came up with that. I'm like, oh, man, this is so cool. I got to work with this. And, and I'm glad it worked out really well. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there are a number of games out there that would involve flicking but it's almost always just one piece it's like it's your disc or i know in in one new game that's out there it's a disc with another disc on top of it but it's never it's never a wheel or anything like that so it definitely seems uh unique or novel yeah and and when i put in my rules i actually put like a little note on the bottom and explain how the physics worked on each one because I thought it was a cool little educational part to the game. Yeah. So you guys are both successful designing games for this publisher, Haba. What did you have in mind as a, at a high level when you started the design? When you're thinking about, okay, I'm making a game for a specific publisher in their contest. Uh, how do you start that process? Because I will admit, I have ordered design content or design kits last year and this year. And sure. have yet to actually submit an entry. Uh, every time I try it, I come up blank. So I'm curious to see where you guys started this process. Yeah. So, I mean, the the first thing for me is with a contest like this, which, you know, I'm really glad that the, the game has done well and that they liked it. Uh, but primarily contests are good exercises at making sure you can start and complete a thing. So when it, whenever I'm designing for a contest, especially something with this this time limit and, you know, the idea of like, don't start designing until you get this box and then figure out what you're going to do with the things in this box. You need to make sure that your ambitions are small enough that you can meet them by the end of the time limit. I'm sure someone out there designed like a three hour worker placement euro uh, with these components, <laughs> uh, but I didn't. Uh, I designed you know, like a, a 15 minute quick game uh, with few rules to make sure that I can play test it enough. I can, you know, make sure the, the rules are tight enough. And I think that makes it easier. Yeah. You and know? also you're, you're trying to design for the audience. Of course, yeah. Baba doesn't, it's not looking for a three hour euros. So right. there's that part of it as well. And I, I always try to look for what, what the publisher is looking for, not necessarily what the publisher already has. Right. There are a lot of people, I mean, whatever, you can make the coolest dexterity game possible. That's that's great. But Haba isn't a company that makes dexterity games. It's a company that makes mostly family-friendly, you know, younger player-friendly games. And, you know, they started as a wood manufacturer. So if you look at, like, the thing that really ties their things together, it's the joy of moving around chunky wooden pieces. And yeah, dexterity games are great at that. But I, I, I wanted to come up with a, a game that was not a dexterity game, so I could make it. But it's still about let's move these things around. It's, it feels fun to to move around the pieces, so that your primary action is is using these these well made pieces of wood. So that that was my goal at, at the start with this. From my point of view, I would say that uh, I'm just trying to design for for the audience based on what I got. So. 
I, you know, I'm still a new designer and new board game player, so I knew Haba at least that they were they were mainly uh, design uh, published games towards kids. So I wanted to design something that would be int- uh, a good game for kids, but at the same time, it would be interesting for adults to play as well. And of course, for that, you would obviously gonna have stuff like language independence and use of colors and symbols because that's kind of how it's easy to understand that way and the less mechanics sometimes the better kind of kind of thing you're trying to not make it too complicated uh but at the same time the game should be fun enough so so that's why the whole thing with getting all the components together and just kind of playing around with them kind of getting into that kids mentality you know Kids sometimes they're young enough they don't even care about playing the game they just want to get these chunky pieces and just play with them yeah um and and that's why you know my game is just that's all it is just chunky pieces and you don't even have to play the game and I've actually play tested the game with both kids and adults and and they both enjoy it enjoyed the game so I was I was very uh, happy with that yeah and if you understand the publisher well enough. There are sometimes instances in which standard game design rules, there might be exceptions depending on what publisher you use, right? Uh, So Haba, for example, widespread, and I would say this is true 99.5% of the time, that you want to double code all your stuff so that if people don't know colors or people can't see colors, they can still play the game through the shapes and that sort of thing. That is a standard usability thing. But Haba sometimes wants to teach its players colors, right? Sometimes wants to use its game to reinforce color learning if you get down low enough, which is why they have these dice with big colored symbols, right? Uh, they're not, you know, they're not different shapes. They're not different things. And th- there are good and bad sides to that. But yeah, so I ended up using that die for the, for the game and it's like, okay, I'm not going to modify this die to double code it because Haba doesn't do that. Haba feels its mission at least in in a portion of its library is to be educational in that way yeah yep yeah and it can be educational through the theme it can be educational through the components it can be educational through the mechanics for sure do you guys feel like a contest like this with a kit would be less successful for let's say a heavier publishing company I mean, that's difficult to say, right? Because the thing about what makes this perfect for Hava is Hava is about its pieces. So getting a box of Hava pieces, one, it's as a designer, you just want those around for your other prototypes. Hey, I'll pay five bucks and you ship me just like yeah. a, a subscription service of uh, Hava pieces every year. Oh, um, but, uh, you know, like, for example, larger publishers would be like, well, OK, I guess you got this custom piece for this thing. But they're like they're designed specifically for a game like they're molded in some style or you know that sort of thing they are built for that thing the thing about haba pieces is like well there there's a haba style of piece so that you can give people random pieces from random games and they still feel like they could make a, a coherent whole uh together and i, I think with with a larger with a larger publisher, what are they sending you? Are they sending you like decks of event cards with a bunch of text on them? I don't, I don't know what that is, right? Uh, Hobba's really good for this type of thing. Yeah, and and of course, there's a part where you're st- so you're giving the designers uh, restrictions, and it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, depending on the designer. Uh, if I wouldn't have had my four sheep and my four discs and my lion and my wheels, I would have designed something completely different. 
And it's one of those things that is for, for in this case, it, it's good because the game is simple enough that you can bring, you can at least have a prototype ready and, and fast because the game, they, they require you to have a game that plays 15 to 45 minutes. But for a bigger publisher, of course, you're, when you have limits like that, sometimes when you want a bigger game done, limits are usually not what, or restrictions is not what you want. You, you usually want something that, that's, you know, open field. I just want to have inspiration and make a game and then pitch it to a publisher that I think the game fits. If you, and sometimes it works. I mean, you got the Game Crafter contest. They give you a, a restriction on, on mechanics or a theme or player interaction or whatever. And, and, and those obviously you know, work as well. But you can see that the games usually turn out to be on the simpler side. So that's usually what it really works, you know, I think it works for, for simpler games when you got those restrictions. Yeah, and it's interesting that we're talking about designing for kids and designing for contests because I do think both of them, both of these topics lend themselves to, okay, build this game so that people can learn it and play it as quickly as possible. You know, whether you're a, a little kid who can't sit still very long or you're a contest judge who has to get through 80 games today, your eyes, even if you're the you know hardcore game player, uh, your eyes will start to glaze over if things get too long, if things get too complicated. So that, you know, not just as, as a designer, you can make the game better by focusing on something smaller and making sure it's as polished as possible. It's also it's easier to get it through the contest, I think, because they'll be able to get it on the first play. They'll be able to enjoy it if they, you know, didn't quite get it. If it's short enough, they can they can try it again really quickly. Um, that it's not daunting in the way like some some big multi-hour euros would be. I can't imagine judging a contest and like, all right, well, OK, here's the 12 page rule book for this one. Oh, this one's 36 pages. OK, so hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like you just get into that stuff like that if if you can can make it less intimidating then they'll be in a better headspace to enjoy the game that you made in the first place oh, yeah for sure. I, and go ahead Jim. yeah yeah i can only imagine the the judges for uh contests like cardboard edison or the ion awards who don't have any restrictions on uh what type of game can be entered and they'll still get 60 80 100 entries Obviously, the the volume of judges helps in that, but I'm sure it can only help so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, Graham. Okay, so we've gotten that the the design space for kids and the design space for contests overlaps a little bit. So when you were designing specifically a game for Hava, which is meant for kids, what aspects are you taking into account to make sure that it's simple enough for kids but still has enough there to be interesting to the adults who are playing along with their kids? Well, for me, I would say that the first thing was to play test it with kids. Obviously, in the in the game design world, it's sometimes, depending on your community, of course, you guys have a big community of designers that you can play test really easily. But it's hard to get play tester kids, you know, kids to play test your games. Because either if you have, you know, if you have children, then it's maybe easier, but they have to be a certain age for that. For me, it actually turned out really well because one of the big play tests that I had, I I, uh, I was still in Tennessee and and I was doing uh, Tennessee board game designers uh, meetings, and I went to this game store. It was usually my my friendly local game store, and for a meeting. And that day, nobody came. 
Nobody came. Now it's just sitting there waiting for people. And I, you know, I saw this guy that I knew that played board games, and I'm like invited him. I set up the the Pyramid of the Magician game, the Tower Pyramid game, Dexterity, and we played that. It was funny because it was a, a Saturday, and there were people playing D and D and Magic around, and there were parents, and there were their kids were in the area, and they were just kind of like playing Nintendo DS or 3DS or whatever, and they, you know, having the the table presence there brought them over and they were kind of interested and you know i'm kind of like you guys want to play and of course i kind of talked to their parents and they're like hey they're just so you know i'm the designer i'm gonna be playing my game here oh yeah for sure and and we played a a game and they really enjoyed it and i'm like do you guys want to play another game and they're like really excited yeah and and i brought off both my games the night at the zoo and cheap cheap rescue and it's just it's not about the feedback when it comes to key kids, like their their feedback that they give you, but the the feedback that they give you while they're playing. If they can, you see that they feel that they look bored. Uh, are they involved in this area? Are they having fun? Are they smiling? Are they laughing? Are they kind of having some banter when when they're playing your game? Is that that feedback is is really important when you're play uh, playtesting kids games. And of course, when you're playtesting with adults as well, that's when you get your feedback. And and uh, I got some feedback for Night at the Zoo from uh, Chris Sinsley from Cardboard Edison when I was at Origins. And going back to that game was a little complicated. And he's like, remember that this is the audience's kids. You want to have mechanics that are make you give, give you meaningful decisions, but you want to still make it uh, an, a good entry level game for for a kid. And and that's where you know playtesting with adults counts. And when you've got adults having fun and kids having fun, that's just uh that's just what you want right there. Yeah, the kids definitely provide feedback on an emotional level rather than a <laughs> rather than an intellectual level. Yeah, and I just fell into that one. You know, I, I could have just oh nobody's here. I I, I could have left, but uh, that was. That was uh, it was a great day for me to play test those games and and then I had my nephews over and and they kind of helped me with ironing out the rules and they played the game and they helped me do a video for the game to explain the mechanics of course when it comes to dexterity having a video it's kind of it, it, it's it's I would I would recommend it because it's hard to explain dexterity interaction with just paper and 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 pictures especially since yours is a is a dexterity game that does not necessarily have a board it's a, it's yes. a, it's very real space as opposed yep. to some of the some of the flicking games where it's like oh you have to hit this target on a board kind of thing yeah so i'm curious graham did you get a chance to test yours out with kids at all uh a couple of times yeah i i have a, a friend's kids played it and uh i, I think it went pretty well the important thing to to make a game for kids is to make sure the rules explanation is as as short and as simple as possible, and that if you can, the sorts of things you would do for a game for older players to like eliminate analysis paralysis, you need to go into overdrive on that stuff with kids' games. You need to present them with a few options. Now, if you can build a game where it's strategically interesting to do those options, then you, yeah, you still have a game that, that adults can enjoy and play. But, for example, with my game, you know, you roll and you see which animal you can move. Okay, well, there are at most four things you can move. Uh, so it's just like, okay, 
Now you roll the thing, and then you look at these, and you move one of these one space. And that's it. That's how you play the game. Uh, and that's easy enough to, to get across. And I, I think that was important because, you know, may, maybe an all-adult game you would want more like, oh, I get to choose what I do, and then there are all these choices, you can do these things. If you can help kids get through the game the first time, they'll surprise you with how much they can pick up strategy. Once they know how to play a game, they can they can school you at a game. Anyone who's played like <laughs> a trading card game with a really good six-year-old knows they are not any worse than any adult. They know yeah. and they have the time to think about it. Um, yeah, kids so, are kids are sponges. That's one thing. Yeah, you know, growing in Puerto Rico, I I you know Spanish is the main language there, and I learned English by the time I was nine because I had watched TV and of course school helped. But when you're a kid, you're learning prowess is so much bigger than when you're an adult and your brain is growing so it's easier for you to pick up stuff yeah so i wouldn't be afraid to make things interesting and tactical but people need to get through a game and especially if you're making a game for kids sometimes you'll have a group of kids where one person's really into it and the other ones are you know not really thinking that hard about what they're doing and you know they're they're looking at other stuff and their attention is elsewhere and there's kind of not a lot you can do as a designer to you. You can mitigate those factors. Uh, you can't make sure every kid at a table is paying attention to the game. So if you can just make sure, you know, they look away and be like, okay, roll the die and then move one of these. Then like, as long as they have done that and they have made a valid move, then, you know, you can build a game where that's not, maybe not the best thing you can do, but it doesn't break the game. It doesn't cause any issues. There are a lot of games where, you know, if one player is really, not doing anything right that kind of breaks everything so you got to make sure especially with the game for kids that like as long as they are technically following the rules everyone else can play and have fun and it's it's got to be really resilient to that and the other thing is regarding having fun if you've got a game that everybody is against everybody the other thing is that as a kid you want to stay involved and have fun throughout the game and if you're playing a you know one uh, everybody versus everybody kind of game as a kid, you're smart. You can figure out sometimes that, hey, I'm lagging behind. Uh, I may not have as fun, and I just want to stop playing kind of thing. That's kind of how they get bored. You want to stop playing kind of thing. That's why I would guess that a lot of people had cooperative games because everybody's working together and everybody wants uh, has to be involved to win in the game. I, I, I get that part, and that's kind of the same reason why I went with a one versus all because my game actually has uh, player elimination. And as the sheep. So if your sheep is eliminated, you can still win the game because somebody can still pick up whatever's left of the lambs and you can still win. So even if you're not playing, you're still involved. And the game, of course, is short enough where player elimination is not a problem. You can just play another game quickly after that. And I want to try the lion this time. Yeah, that's a really good point. You got to make sure that that people are engaged at all times. That's a lot of what we're talking about here is these are good things for all games, but they're just especially important for kids' games. Uh, you know, games for adults are already kind of moving toward, okay, can we make these turns shorter? I, I think kind of that's been the, the ticket to ride thing is like, all right, how short can we get this turn? You still There's still a lot of stuff you can do it, but it will get around to your turn faster, so it's fine. But also, if you can just get rid of the turn structure entirely and and let people continually be involved in what's going on then that works too okay so for both of you was there a point in your game where you thought this is too much for 
either children or for Haba as a publisher and had to scale things back, whether it was, especially Julio with you with both of the games, was the one too complex. Yes, for sure. Uh, Night at the Zoo was definitely, I had that problem. The game played well. It's just that, and this kind of came with the, the time limit on the contest because I still had to do rules for both games. And, and I knew the Night at the Zoo game wasn't ready for Haba and wasn't as kid friendly as my other game. And I was like, even though the game works really well, I'm not going to submit it because I know it's not going to do well in the contest. So I just kind of, I just, I, I didn't even dial back because again, there was a time constraint of I'm no Chief G Rescue. It's that simple game that adults and kids can play. I'm going to focus on this one. And, and for that one, there's still some, some rules that I had to work out, especially when you hit the sheep with the slider instead of the lion, uh, or when you're, when your animals fell out the, the table, what were the rules concerning that? So there's still some little technical rules that you have to work around, but they're still simple enough that kids understand really well. What about you, Graham? Yeah, uh, so uh, a lot of the initial design for this was actually done live at a guild meeting, and that was a lot of fun, and we, we had a couple of people there. And I had the basic idea of the movement, and I knew I needed something Something interesting to to twist things that I, I ended up using the zookeeper and and you know locking down movement and that sort of thing. We tried some stuff that was not complicated from a rules perspective, but complex in terms of being able to read the board state. Because I'm you know a video game person and, and love old school stuff, I was like, what what if it loops around? What if you can move from the outside to the board to the other side? Like, no, that's actually not a thing. People can read very quickly, even if they're adults. I, initially I had two zookeepers and like the intersections between them were the ones that were locked down because they could both see them. So you couldn't get out of their eye line. That was, that was also nonsense, but I, I liked, you know, exploring that space, but like, this was, this was not going to work for, for what we wanted. Mine's definitely on the, the simpler end in, in terms of mechanics. So I, you know, I don't, I didn't hit up uh, against anything particularly complex after that. So anything else that you guys want to say about designing for kids or designing for specific contests? A contest, it's a great way to push yourself to get inspiration because you got some direction, even if it's just a publisher. If you're doing a contest for a specific publisher, at least you've got some direction of what the publisher is looking for. And I just say try it out, even if it doesn't work out the first time, just Try it a second time, and and it just gets your your brain in that mindset of of getting some ideas for what you're looking for. And of course, if you're having problems with getting inspiration for your other games, you may even have the situation where you're thinking about a contest and you think of a mechanic that works really well with one of the games that you've been having problems with. For sure. So it's just one of those things that hey, try it out, and and you can definitely push yourself to getting some inspiration that way. Yeah, I think it's obvious that like, okay, contests are great to get kickstarted designing. I know a lot of the the people who listen to the podcast are like, I want to get into design, right? So contests are a great way to get into that. You have restrictions. You kind of have a small box that, that you can work on. But I think what I love the most about contests is as someone who is not the most extroverted individual, who doesn't have the most contacts in the industry, that sort of thing, it, it can be difficult to get through the door at publishers and and get what you're get what you've made considered by people but contests you enter them 
they take a look at them. You know, they 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 judge your work on on its merits. And you know, if you're if you like me are someone who works way better in that context than in you know putting yourself out there at cons and and just happening to introduce yourself to strangers in the hopes that they own a publishing company. That it's it's a great way to focus on the design, not get bogged down so much in in the other part of it. And I, I like that part of contest so much. And it may get you in that comfortable state where if you already have that communication with somebody, even if it's another designer, then it it, it gives you a little more incentive to get out there and be more extroverted towards people in, in conventions for sure yeah personally i feel like there's there's nothing quite as motivating as a contest deadline where it says <laughs> you have to have something in the mail by this date or you have to uh-huh. have sent off the submission form by this date yeah and i i love the board game industry i'm doing my best to be a part of it but if there's something that it doesn't do great, it's deadlines. And usually with contests, not only is there designed for you, but there's they've already said when they're going to announce the winners. There's a deadline for them, too. You know when you have to get it in and when you will hear back. There is no anxiety about, oh, well, okay, it's been eight months. Do I contact them now about it? Oh, no, they haven't gotten around to playing it yet. Uh, the Contests are not that, and I, I love that part of them. There's yeah. still some anxiety when you know that always oh, the results are coming in this day. What's going to happen? It's still yeah. There's still some excitement there. Oh, for sure. But it's more fun than just okay. Uh, my phone could ring sometime. <laughs> True. Yeah. We'll get back to you anywhere between three weeks and nine months. <laughs> hey, I would take that. Oh, can we hold people to a nine month deadline? <laughs> All right. So some game designers in North Carolina news. Friend of the guild, Tim Armstrong, has a game called Bad Maps, which is coming from Floodgate Games. Uh, it is most likely live on Kickstarter right now, or if this gets edited and posted very quickly, it will be going live September 5th. Don't know how long the campaign is running for, but we're guessing it is a fairly average-length campaign of about 30 days. Uh, so go ahead and check out Bad Maps on Kickstarter. Folks want to get in touch with you. How can they do that? Julio. I am on Twitter, where I share uh, whatever idea I'm working on, whatever game I'm working on, at Hunasaru, J-U-N-A-Z-A-R-U. Just hit me out there. Graham. Yeah, I am on Twitter at Color Ninja. I have accounts everywhere else with that name, but also contact me on Twitter. (laughs) All right. On Twitter, I am at Apollo Continuum, A-P-O-L-L-O. C-O-N-T-I-N-U-U-M, at least until I get a shorter handle. (laughs) Uh, And like the other two, I'm always posting design stuff, and I am happy to chat. And uh, also, we've got the Game Designers of North Carolina Asheville chapter. That's right. Uh, We do have a a new chapter now. It's not just those of us here in the Triangle. There's a Game Designers of North Carolina Asheville chapter. And how often do you guys meet? We are meeting uh, every two weeks between two game stores, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. So it works out every three Fridays, every three Tuesdays kind of thing. But it works out every two weeks. All right. Uh, So to discuss this episode of the podcast, please go to our guild on Board Game Geek. Go to podcast.gdofnc.com and that will redirect you to our guild on Board Game Geek. We love your feedback. Uh, We also have a group Twitter account that you can follow at gdofnc which stands for Game Designers North Carolina. Uh, if you want more information about the Asheville chapter meeting times, I'm sure you can hit up that uh, Twitter handle, and we will be able to relay it to you. 
that'll do it for this episode of the Game Designers North Carolina podcast. Good night. Good night. All right. Good, good afternoon, maybe. <laughs> it's podcasting. Yeah, Have a good one.